Welcome back to Small Business Big Lessons, a Buffer original series. My name is Ash Reed, Head of Content at Buffer, and throughout this series, we're going on a journey to understand how great work happens. We're telling the stories of unique businesses and meeting the incredible people behind them, examining how they're doing things differently and what we can learn from their journeys. Work. It's something we all have to do, right? Every morning, the alarm goes off. We get up, go to work, we complete tasks that in some way help the business to hit its goals. Then eight or so hours later, we go home, we cook dinner, do some chores, and have a few hours to ourselves before we start all over again. But what if it didn't have to be this way? What if work was less about businesses and what they need to grow, and more about people and what we need to live meaningful lives? And what would happen in a world where we didn't actually need to work? That might sound like a utopian dream, but also that future might not be too far off. In this episode, we're diving into the world of people-first business and the post-work economy, looking at what happens when people come before profits and purpose means more than productivity. Hi, I am Natalie Nagel. I'm co-founder and CEO of Wildbit. We are a 20-year-old, fully private, profitable software company. We've been remote the entire 20 years of our existence. We have 35-ish people spread out all over the world. And I run it with my husband, Chris, and we're based in Philadelphia. But for the most part, we are a 100% remote, magical little company. I think one of the things that we've, we're starting to realize is consistent across people first businesses is this idea that you believe that a business in and of itself exists to support human beings and not to just support itself as a thing. And so the way we look at it a while, but is, you know, I, I believe businesses were designed by humans and therefore exist to do good for humans and they serve us. And the humans that we think about are, we, we think of four human constituents, uh, the shareholders, or, you know, in our case, just the two of us, the founders, your employees, uh, customers, and what we call community, which is anybody external to the organization. So for us, community includes families, you know, our employees' families, that narrow to, you know, the environment and being good stewards of our planet. The action plan behind that is then anytime we're making a decision, we're saying, who does this serve, right? And so sometimes they'll fall into, oh, well, we're doing this for the business. And I'll always stop and say, well, who? Where's the business? What, what is the business? Which constituent, right? And so it's, it's this constant reminder that there's humans behind it. Natalie believes the greatest force against you in building what you want is actually your own business. And if you always focus on what the business needs, you tend to overlook what you and the other people around the business need. The thing that we've discovered over time is the business in and of itself is designed to just want to be bigger all the time, to want to grow, you know, like it's insatiable. I, I always think of it as a beast, this insatiable beast that always wants to grow. And that's how it starts to control the experience. And it's, you're feeding the beast, you know, like grow, hire more, invest more, whatever those things are, but without a pause to say, but who's that going to serve in the end? Because if you're serving this imaginary thing that does, you know, that's not real, right? That the humans are real, but I have lots of friends who run startups and, you know, their burnout comes from the realization that they've been chasing this thing and it didn't serve anybody. <laughs> and so they're like, they kind of quit. So it's, you know, people first is humans first, right? People first. What are the people that are in and around the business and are we making decisions specifically in service of them? When you start a new business, simply keeping the lights on takes up most of your time and focus. But as the dust settles on a new venture, there will often come an opportunity to step back and take some time to think about your why. 
As we've heard in previous episodes, confronting your why is essential to thinking about growth and planning for the future. For Natalie and Chris, the answer to their why came in focusing on the people in their team and making sure that the moves they make are in the best interests of the human beings that form their company. We did not set out with a vision of being people first when we started Wildbit. Uh, Chris actually started Wildbit a little bit before I came into the picture. Uh, he was 20 years old. I assure you there was no people first. There was how do we pay our rent and our mortgage and have some folks to do the work and you know do client work. So no, I mean, it's absolutely a revelation that takes time or took time for us. The biggest catalyst was sometime in 2012 when our largest product at the time, Beanstalk, was kind of hitting a plateau. And we felt up until that point that growth was just happening to us. We weren't really responsible for it. So when we hit a plateau, we felt very out of control. How would we solve this? And so there was this kind of journey out of that wasn't necessarily solving the plateau, but it was recognizing that we had not stopped to ask ourselves why, like, why do we run a business? Why do we want it to succeed? Why don't we just call it and do something else? You know, what are like, what are the deep whys behind it? And uncovering from there, like all these reasons why we want to do this. And of course, they're all human reasons, right? They're reasons for ourselves. It's our own accomplishments. It's things we want to do for the teams, for our customers and for our community. And so that I think was like the catalyst to start to really explore, like, what is the point of all of this? I was talking to a banker once and he was like, keep building wealth. And I was like, what does that even mean? I mean, I understand what that means intrinsically, but like to me, at least a business is a tool that provides some kind of a better life, fulfillment for employees, a, you know, financial stability and freedom for Chris and I, you know, all these things. But in and of itself, it's flexible. It's malleable. It's, it's under our control to shape it in whatever way we want. As long as we're answering, like, is this in the best interest of the people, right? Is this in the best interest of the team? So I'm Will Strong. I'm the Director of Research at Autonomy. Um, Autonomy is a think tank or a research organization, and we produce policy and research around a particular focus, and that's the future of work. What companies like Wildbit are doing is imagining how work can be better, how we can improve our relationship between work and life, and even what it means to work. This area is broadly referred to as the future of work, and it's a hot topic in the business world, in academia, and in government. Most of us spend the majority of our lives at work, so the future of work impacts us all. And as social and technological change is accelerating all around us, it's inevitable that work will change too. And it's never been more important to have conversations around how, where, and why we work, so that we can create a future that works for everyone. So I think it's important to think about the future of work uh, for a great variety of reasons, partly because we're, we're kind of looking down the barrel of a number of different crises that our, our societies are facing. So that might be the environmental crisis, um, the kind of unsustainability of how we work, what kind of work we do and what kind of production we have across our economy, a crisis in terms of potentially uh, technological unemployment. We really do have to change our mindset when we think about the future of work and I think it has to become more people orientated. At a large percentage of organisations, the business comes before people and this leads to less than ideal working conditions. But change is coming. You're seeing this really kind of fairly brutal working practices of giant, giant corporations kind of pooling precarious staff and deteriorating working conditions to, to what looks often like a kind of almost like a Victorian age of, of, of factory work, for example. On the other hand, you have companies which we work with all the time. At Autonomy, we run a consultancy with firms who are trying to reduce working time for their staff while retaining pay. And these kind of companies who are really thinking about working time and well-being and work-life balance, you're seeing a whole load of companies come out now saying, actually, we are, we are thinking about this. And I think that's because they really realise that 
burning staff out, working them to the bone, and also really treating them in kind of really deplorable ways. It's, it's really not good for business. It's really not good for kind of getting the most out of people. Uh, particularly as we move into more hybrid ways of working, I think it's important to build that trust with employees, you gain that kind of loyalty from staff. I think actually, if I give to this company, they will actually give back. There's plenty of companies that prioritize customers above all else at the expense sometimes of their team, right? Maybe, you know, customer support or account reps who have to be available nights and weekends or whatever that is. And that's an acceptable experience. I think the priority there is that it's transparent to employees, that they know that they're signing up for that, that there wasn't some bait and switch in that situation. As a pattern, and I can't say that this is like something we've written down, but what I've seen in our natural behavior as a company is we prioritize the team, the employees above all else. It's a lot of how we work is around deep focus work, around making prioritizing fulfillment for employees. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer that like if the team feels safe, secure and fulfilled, we can move mountains for anybody and anything, right? So that's always been our priority. And by focusing on being a truly people first business, Natalie realized that the working week needed a shakeup. So we have been running on a 32-hour, four-day work week since May 2017. And our journey to it started a little bit before that. We had maybe a year and a half, maybe two years before that, had said something revolutionary and said, hey, we only work 40 hours a week <laughs> because it shouldn't be more than that. Like, we shouldn't be working weekends. We shouldn't be working nights. And it's really important to Chris and I that our team does not work more than 40 hours a week. And like we had to put that on the website and people would apply and say, it's really nice to see that I only have to work 40 hours a week. A big reason Wildbit was able to limit its team to 40 hour weeks and later trim the week down to 32 hours is the idea of deep work, a phrase coined by Cal Newport, a best-selling author and professor at Georgetown University. The concept of deep work suggests that creative workers can really only do around four hours of meaningful, focused work in a day. As part of that journey, we were also, probably since the beginning of Wildbit, like really obsessed with focus work, like the ability to, to create space to do deep, meaningful work from a productivity standpoint, from a mental health standpoint, right? And also from a just, I don't want to work as much standpoint. <laughs> One of the beautiful things about a remote team is that you get the gift of deep work. Okay, it's kind of built in, right? There's no office, there's no distractions. We pile on distractions with crap like Slack and, and instant message and all kinds of stuff, meetings. But like by its nature, when we were doing remote work 15 years ago, you had seven and a half hours of deep work in front of you, right? Like there was nobody bothering you, there was nobody distracting you. So as it evolved and Slack and those things became a thing and the teams are growing, we spent a lot of time really just always reflecting on like, well, what, what do we keep doing? How do we change behavior so that we can prioritize deep work? It was never, how do we become more productive? Because those are hacks. Often, when it comes to measuring productivity, businesses focus on the wrong things, with measures like the number of hours worked being seen as an indicator of how productive an employee is. Some companies, like Wildbit, are approaching productivity from a different angle, instead focusing on outcomes and quality of work as measures of success. What we've seen in, in our work at Autonomy is that Often companies are now moving to an output-based form of production, basically, rather than a presence form. And I think that it's been a very traditional form of management to expect constant presence, which for managers can often represent that stuff is happening, activity is happening. But I think in a great many industries, you now recognize that actually people's best work doesn't happen 100% of the time. And actually, output can be a bit of a, a squiggly line in terms of you know when and where the best work gets done. We don't have good ways to measure results on output. Like, you know, and, and so instead we train managers to measure 
things that they can see, really like tangible things, uh, hours spent in seats, these things that are just cheaper to measure, right? Easier to measure. They don't require creativity or thought. So we build all this bureaucracy because we don't trust people, because we don't invest in people to be fulfilled in their work. And we build this bureaucracy and we judge people's output by this horrible measure of but and see. But when do we get to a point where we reflect on us as human beings doing work and the way in which we deliver the work and whether that work is meaningful. I think the best thing companies can do is create an atmosphere and the right conditions so that the best output can be produced, you know, within requisite time, of course, for something in which like the working culture and the kind of setup is is there so that there's a bit of control, a bit of ownership of, of the process from those working in it so they can actually produce their best work. To me, productivity is directly tied to just my job as a the business owner to create a space where you can get deep work done. If I can do that, I don't need productivity hacks, right? I just need to give you space to, to do work. And so in that journey, we read, I read a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, in which the author writes a lot about the brain's capacity for deep, meaningful work. Science has shown that like most of us cannot do more than four hours of really deep meaningful work. And when they say deep work, it's like the work that we're actually hired to do. None of us were hired to sit in meetings or check email, right? We were hired to be software designers, developers, but not an email checker. For many of us, modern day work involves a lot of bouncing between meetings and emails or Slack DMs. But that's not the type of work that will give much meaning to your day. It's just the filler that surrounds the few hours of focus work you can actually achieve in an average day. Cal Newport's deep work theory is based on the notion that workers can't be fully productive across a complete eight hour workday, and that most people can do a maximum of three to four hours of solid focused work per day. And they were realizing like most people, four hours max, and it's not four consecutive hours a lot of times. It's like, you know, a couple hours, you take a break, a couple more hours. And after that, it's diminishing returns. Our brain is like, like a muscle and it just gets tired and it's just not gonna produce as, as valuable work. So when I read that, I clearly remember having a conversation being like, well, four times five is 20 and we work 40 hours a week. So what are we doing for 20 hours? And that was it. It was, it was as simple as like, I don't understand this. We should work less. This revelation led Natalie to begin experimenting with how the Wildbit team operated and carried out their work. What we said was let's in the summer when things are a little bit slower, let's just lob off a day and see what happens. Uh, knowing full well that things were going to fall apart, but we're wild bit and we take ex we can experiment. Nobody's going to yell at me. So we just kind of set off on this journey to see what would happen. The first quarter I was requesting a lot of feedback, like, and I didn't need, I wasn't measuring hours. I was measuring like how people were feeling, how productive they were feeling. I trusted my team to know that like, if they weren't feeling productive, they would say something. And that first quarter folks were really concerned. There was a lot of, I don't know if we're doing enough work. I don't know if this is a good idea. I'm writing a lot less code. I, I feel a lot of pressure to get things done. So from that point on, we, we kind of, we were committed to making it work and started to really explore how to be even better at deep work. Implementing a four day or 32 hour work week isn't as simple as just cutting a day off. It takes a lot of adaptation from both leadership and employees. It's not about fitting five days of work into four ultra productive days. Instead, it's about challenging your processes and rethinking how you approach work. I've seen four day work weeks really fail because folks just lob off a day and then assume that it's gonna be great, but really like nothing changed in people's day to day work. And so for us, like we dropped a bunch of meetings, we started 
planning differently, like collectively as a team, we plan four times a year, the whole company, so that we can prioritize when folks can get into deep, thoughtful work and when folks are required to kind of help each other and strategize and think broadly across the organization. We spend some time with individuals asking them to reflect on when their meetings are. When we're like a distributed team, time zones really can have an impact on how much focus work you can get a day. If my 9 a.m. Eastern meeting is, you know, your noon, you know, I don't know, your 2 p.m. meeting and that breaks up your whole day. That might, it might be a 30 minute meeting, but cost two hours of time. You can only be more productive if you simultaneously change the way in which you work. You don't just ask people to shove five days into four. So we spent a lot of effort and continuous effort. We still think about it today on how can we work more intentionally so that we just keep cutting the hours down. Natalie also discovered that working four days a week had benefits for their employees beyond simply having more free time. People were more refreshed when they returned to work and this new energy had benefits for the company. I don't look at it strictly from a productivity standpoint. I also think there's a tremendous amount of value in three consecutive days off. So to me, rest is just as important as work. And so if we were scientific about it, we're probably losing some productivity by dropping the Friday altogether, but I'm gaining it in giving our minds the space to rest, being present in our communities and our homes. And that produces a better quality work because our minds have longer to think when we're not thinking, right? Longer to solve problems, longer to refresh. A lot of times you're solving problems on the weekends. You had no idea you were, and you sit down in front of your computer on Monday and you're like, oh, figured it out. Will's organization, Autonomy, has been working with businesses of all sizes across the globe to run pilot schemes and help them navigate the uncharted waters of four-day work weeks. And they found that shorter working weeks almost always result in positive outcomes for both the business and employees. Once we have run shorter working weeks or four-day weeks in companies, normally over a six-month period, the working culture itself has improved as well. So I think that's something which we really learned from this as well, that actually you learn a lot about your work process, you learn a lot about your staff, and staff learn a lot about how they work as well and their workload. And I think from that, every single client we've worked with have come out of it you know, feeling that they know their office better, but also that they, they feel better about their work. But when so much of work is measured by time spent, how can businesses adjust to shorter working hours and uncover new measurements for success? Success of the 32-hour work week is a difficult subject because we're trying to convince big organizations this is the way to go. Most of what you read on the internet and most of these experiments, they're measuring whether or not you can get as much done in less time, which I don't think is an unfair measure. It's just most of the time when you look at how they're measuring it, it's an unfair way of measuring it. But there's some successes, right? There's some data out there now that shows that, yes, we can be more productive. We were measuring how well we felt we delivered to our customers and how we felt. So that those were kind of our two markers. So about a year after we kicked off the 40 work week, we were all together on our company retreat. And some of the things we looked back on was what are all the features we shipped? You know, just purely what did we ship to customers in the last year? And when we looked at the list, we were all like, wow, that was a lot, a lot more than the year before and the year before that. So that felt really great. So we knew that we were able to deliver to our customers. Financially, we've had the steepest growth in our products. We've grown faster in the last four years than we have in the preceding eight. So obviously able to continue to grow really well, <laughs> working less amount of time. 
Uh, and then there's the feelings, right? So how does the team feel? Do they feel able to think of work as an integration with life, not a nine to five box? The result of that is that folks are able to be their true selves and, and have more space to be their, their selves and show up for their families and their communities because they have the extra day. And so people feel really good. It shows up in different ways. For some folks, it's really just showing up for their families, right? Like being home one day a week with their kids is a remarkable gift. Uh, for others, it's being part of their communities, right? And we're showing up to work better on Mondays. So a lot of folks will tell each other and, and us that they look forward to Mondays. Like there's no Sunday scaries, right? These three consecutive days off are really refreshing. In the summers, it's very common for folks to take mini vacations all the time. Camping trips, I mean, three days is a lot enough to like go run away and escape somewhere and come back and feel refreshed and recharged. So uh, it's working. So far, we've heard about adapting existing working patterns and practices to better serve both companies and working people. But what about going a step further? What does the world look like post-work? Some predict that as automation becomes more advanced and the way in which companies make money changes, there will be less demand for human beings to perform physical labor. This could cause mass unemployment, and with our current systems in place, it could become a dystopian nightmare. But on the other hand, it could improve life for much of the world's population. Postwork is really a collection of ideas, authors, um, a set of family resemblances around a certain theme. And the theme really, I guess, has two parts. On the one hand, um, postwork is really about having a kind of unromantic and, and kind of critical approach to, to modern work. So not kind of having rose-tinted goggles about how modern work operates. Because for a great number of people uh, globally, but also in the UK, work is not something which they feel is particularly meaningful. So we should really have a kind of critical eye as to what is modern work and what's it doing to us and think about how it can be improved. The second aspect of post-work is much more utopian. Um, and that's probably, you can get the ring from just the name itself. And the, the, the utopian aspect of post-work is thinking through what a world would be where employment is kind of decentered from our everyday lives. So at the moment, obviously, we live to work. That's unfortunately for the great many people, that's, that is the case. But in a post-work world, employment, earning a living through a wage or a salary would just be one of a variety of activities that we do. So it might be that we have you know, self-directed activities, work for ourselves, unpaid work. We might have, you know, being with friends and family and so on also might have a different kind of civilization, a different kind of democracy. So part of what we're trying to do with the concept of post-work is, is on the one hand, be have a kind of eagle-eyed view on where modern work is going, but also kind of propose you know, a, a new world of work. So that would be something like shorter working weeks, a universal basic income, greater democracy in our workplaces. There's a few things that come to mind when I think about what's going to change on a broad scale, how we work and how we view business and the purpose of work and all of these things, we're, we're all facing this like big philosophical questions around, you know, I think a lot about like, do we have to work? It's worth thinking about Natalie's question, do we have to work? Whereas now we get a lot of our self-worth from our work. In a post-work world, it's likely that we'd uncover different ways to find fulfillment and meaning in our lives. It's another chance for people to experiment as to what they want to do and be and if they want to take up a new hobby, they want to see their friends a bit more and so on. We do a lot of interviews with staff from all sorts of industries and what I find most fascinating is asking people what are you going to do with your, with your time off or what have you been doing? For a couple of centuries now we have really invested meaning and purpose into what job we have um, but we shouldn't forget that actually you know 200, 250 years isn't that long a time before uh, modern industrialism, modern capitalism 
There were a variety of things that people were doing. They were working on their own patch of the commons. We had far more festivals, particularly in the UK. We had like, a whole range of different days, which were kind of like sacred holy days. I think it's really important to remember that there was a time before the nine to five, basically. And so I think while it is, it's going to be a huge cultural shift, I think it will take a number of decades for us to kind of make that jump from thinking that I am what I do to thinking actually that I do multiple things. And actually, they all give me different meaning in different ways. And at companies like Wildbit, the four-day work week is already giving employees more time to explore life outside of work and to reconnect with themselves and their passions. I love my Fridays. I spent my Fridays in two ways. Uh, one, I live in the city. And so for me, it was really important to just take walks. And the other way, which I spent a lot of my Friday working on some big problems, you know, through nonprofit work that, you know, are really important to me. And Chris and I together are part of a few organizations and so I sit on some boards. Hey, I'm Fanula, and I spend Fridays with my two young kids. Uh, we'll usually head to the park and attempt some food shopping, and if we're lucky, we'll squeeze a nap in too. I'm Bettina, and on Fridays, I occasionally pick up freelance projects for other startups or do marketing for a local nonprofit. My name is Anna, and my Fridays are for traveling, so I can live in the city and still see my family whenever I like. My name is Alyssa, and my Fridays are for catching up with friends where my partner can breakdance with his crew and I can practice roller skating. Hi, my name is Ilya, and what I would do on my Fridays off is sometimes I would grab a flight back, drive to the airport, and I would teach people how to fly airplanes. My name is Justine, and I use my Fridays to find balance and take care of my mental health. That usually means a workout, catching up with friends and colleagues, mentorships, errands, and time outside gardening. My name is Rian, and um... Wow, every Friday looks a little bit different for me. Today, there's going to be a lot of, uh, we have a lot of laundry today, so it's going to be a lot of that. Momentum is gathering behind the four-day workweek and people-first movements. But there's a lot to be done before these approaches will truly become mainstream. Least of all, proving that all sectors and industries have the ability to adapt. I think the baseline we should always remember is that we used to be working seven days a week, six days a week, and then five days a week became the full time. So that's now been normalized across all sectors that a five day week is generally speaking the full time week. So we shouldn't forget that historically it has been achieved that all sectors have managed to move to shorter working weeks in time. With that said, I think there'll be different strategies for different sectors basically. So for the public sector, for nursing, for doctors, for teachers and so on, those professions will require new headcount, they'll require new staff, basically greater employment in those sectors because it's, it's a different kind of work to other forms, for example, of office work where the kind of the, the working day is quite elastic, the output can vary, whereas teaching, nursing and doctors, basically it's, it's very hard to basically be able to, to, let's say, cram more in to reduce working week, you basically will need new staff. In other sectors, manufacturing and construction and so on, there'll be different parameters, different needs, in some sectors, you might have to have greater holiday rather than having reduced working weeks. It, it will depend, basically, but ultimately those strategies are available. And for change to happen on a global scale, it's going to take a lot of effort from governments, businesses and employees. So I think change in a positive direction for the future of work needs to come from a number of angles. I think there's no one single actor that can kind of bring about um, the future of work that, that we think we, that we desire or that we think would be a good thing for everyone. Um, so I think both businesses and government have a really important role to play and also everyday working people as well, to be honest. So I think at a, at a national scale, I think it's really important that the government has 
key policies in place, key um, policy nudges, encouragements, things which kind of move industry in a certain direction. I think it's really, really important because, as I've alluded to before, I think there are some companies who, who have no real interest in bringing about a better future for all, whereas there are many good companies that do want to do good in the world and actually kind of improve society. And I think it's important the government encourages them with certain policies. At the same time, I think it's really important there's a kind of vanguard or first adopter set of companies really kind of pushing the well-being of, the, of their staff. And um, as we enter this really tumultuous second half of the 21st century, I think it's important that businesses really do start thinking about what is the future of work and how can they make that something which can work for everyone. My industry is software. I, I realize that it's different than more traditional work, but you are seeing more employees saying, I don't want to work. 90 hours for some unknown company that produces crap for the world, that abuses its power, right? Like they don't want that. And so the more you have brilliant people who are highly employable and saying, I won't, I won't settle for that. We're going to start to change narratives, right? Like companies can't do work without employees. So like my dream is that companies like, like Buffer, like Wildbit, right? Pay great salaries, create great work environments, start like scooping these folks and come work for a great company that actually cares about you and that wants to work with you to make the world a better place. And that the bigger companies are going to have to say, oh, oops, okay, maybe we have to make some changes. But I think people are going to demand a better experience. And so it's a lot of fun to be on this side of the house and being like, yeah, I'm there for it. Let's 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 prove that we can make it a better experience and that everybody wins in the end, right? Our relationship with work is changing and never before have so many people questioned why things are the way they are and who really benefits from the current systems and 40 hour plus working weeks. As employees begin to demand more from their employers, the businesses that thrive will be the ones that value people above everything else. After all, as Natalie says, businesses are designed by humans and therefore should exist to do good for humans and serve and support our needs. It shouldn't be the other way around. And with broader adoption of people-first principles, we believe that it's possible to create a future that works for everyone. This episode of Small Business Big Lessons was written by me, Ash Reed. Script edited by my teammate, Ariel Tannenbaum, and produced by Rowan Bishop at Message Heard. We're making this podcast because we believe in a different way to do work. And we want to share the stories of the businesses inspiring us. We also share our own story transparently over at buffer.com forward slash open. If this episode has inspired you or is helping you think about building your business in new ways, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us at Buffer, head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and be sure to subscribe. Subscribe.